0: The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hi, everybody.
1: Oh, hi, everybody. And uh, welcome to this uh, latest episode of Morpin and Brian Conversation. Uh, this week, we're continuing our discussion of various aspects of uh, the October Revolution and its legacy and the lessons that it has for workers. Uh, everywhere. Uh, And in particular, this week, we wanted to talk about agriculture in the Soviet Union, Uh, farming. You know, a lot of people understand that Russia at the time of the October Revolution was a, 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 a dominantly peasant country. The biggest class in Russia was small peasant farmers, people with a tiny bit of land who were just holding on. They were very impoverished and they were radicalized by their conditions and by the First World War and how that made their conditions even worse. And of course, they bore the brunt of the fighting in the war. So one of the the, the slogan of the revolution was peace, land, and bread. And the land part was the demand of the peasantry that they should have their land and be secure on their land and be able to make a living from their land. Um, So uh, I really wanted to uh, introduce this discussion today just by thinking about um, the collectivization movement and What was its significance to a country like Russia and to the project to build a socialist country? And maybe, um, Huppar, you could kick us off on that.
2: Well, there were a number of reasons for adopting the course of collectivization. First of all, there was the question that small peasantry nowhere can ever be living outside poverty. It produces extreme poverty. The only way to bring prosperity and culture to the peasantry was to actually put together the scattered individualist peasantry into collective farmings and collective labor. So that was one reason. The second one was to actually ensure the leadership of the working class in the countryside over the peasantry, which could only be done through collectivization, i.e. the bond between the town and the countryside had to be not based on cotton, as was hitherto the case, namely supplying textiles and various things to the peasantry and in return getting uh, grain from them. But it had to be built on metal, on machines. And thirdly, it was important to do do that in order to actually prevent the restoration of capitalism because as as Lenin never tired of saying, small production, small commodity production constantly on a daily and hourly basis engenders capitalism. And one way of preventing the restoration of capitalism was actually to collectivize the, 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 pe- the peasantry. And so these, these were the main re- reasons for doing it. The Bolsheviks were never in favor of individual farming. They had adopted that slogan and actually taken over the program of socialist revolutionaries of land to the peasantry, because that's what the peasantry wanted at that time to get their support for the revolution that was adopted. But the vision was always to collectivize the peasantry, to get them out of poverty, to make sure that they were a reliable ally of the proletariat, that the proletariat could not stand on one leg. Big socialist industry in the urban centers and scattered
3: peasant agriculture in the countryside where the overwhelming majority of the Russian population at that time lived.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, if you look at over, I, people don't give any credit. Uh, you know that the modern agricultural system was created by the Soviet Union. Uh, prior to the Soviet Union, millions of people died of starvation all the time and malnourishment, and and there were routine famines. People living in utter poverty, and it was the Soviet Union that mechanized agriculture, uh, that brought tractors to the farms, that built the modern collective farm system, that. I mean, no credit is given. I had I've had this argument and this debate with many uh, defenders of capitalism, and they'll say they'll start, you know, you know, rattling off numbers about starvation. I'll be like, wait a second, you know, what was what was Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution, and uh, what was Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution? And it's pretty clear that that they're the ones that built a modern agricultural system, and they did it on socialist methods, uh, and and that's very very clear. Now, I guess my understanding is first you had war communism where, you know, the military kind of controlled everything in the process of defeating the white army during the civil war. Then you had the new economic policy in the countryside where they were having individual private farming. Uh, and then you had, uh, you know, what people, you know, call the, the collectivization, which was part of the five-year plans, building these collective farms, which were not like state factories, right? They did sell, their goods to the state. It was like they got paid you know, per item that they produced. It wasn't like a state-run factory where they just got a wage. And you had the collective farm system. And that collective farm system was ultimately the model that China and Cuba and North Korea and many socialist countries have adopted for their agricultural sector. Am I correct in that?
1: They certainly did after the revolution, yeah. Um, you talked a little bit there, Caleb, about the the need for, you know, kind of transitional phases before collectivization could start, right? That they couldn't in 1917 just go, hey, we're ready to collectivize. There was first they had to fight the war, uh, the Civil War, then the War of Intervention, you know, 14 countries from Europe all invading, trying to uh, crush the the revolution there. And uh, then because the economy was in ruins, they had the new economic policy period, and it was only really once they'd put the economy back on its feet, They could sort of turn their attention Mm -hmm. to um, modernizing agriculture, which is really what uh, the the, um, collectivization program is all about. What what is it for? It's for helping the people in the countryside understand that working together is going to make their lives better. You're going to produce more and you're going to have better conditions of work. It will be better for the country as a whole, but you have to show them that from their experience step by step. And so, Hapal, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about the some of the difficulties that were faced uh, by the collectivisation movement. Um, and how have they been misrepresented? You know, the difficulties of moving from small-scale peasant farming to collective farms. Um, obviously, there would there, there were difficulties, but they've been, I think, grossly misrepresented in our in the Western
3: media.
2: Well. This was an accusation which was made above all by Trotsky
3: that that
2: collectivization should have started in 1925. It was too late and, uh, and it only came about because the Kulaks stopped selling grain and Stalin suddenly realized the importance of collectivization. This is not true. The Bolsheviks always understood the importance of collectivization, but collectivization cannot take place it's not an administrative affair. It's a case of taking tens of millions of peasants with you to, to collectivize. But what's more, you can collectivize poverty, and that's not gonna make it a success. So in order to collectivize, certain very minimum
3: conditions have to be satisfied. First of all, the towns and the Red Army have to be fed. And at that time,
2: the marketable grain was mainly produced by the kulaks. They supplied marketable grain with which the workers in the factories and the Red Army could be fed. Unless, so, until such time sorry as- Sorry to you interrupt, were, Dad, sorry
1: to interrupt. Could you just tell us who were the kulaks? Because I
2: don't know if kul- everybody knows that term. Kulaks were rich capitalist farmers. Okay. They were rich capitalist farmers. Uh, I mean, you know, they were not peasant farmers. Of course, they are included in the definition of peasantry, but they were the they were the rich farmers in the in in the, in the countryside. They were not the big landed aristocracy. They were not the poor peasantry. They were not the middle peasantry. They were rich peasants. You know, they indulged in um, lending money. They acted as money lenders in the countryside, and they exploited hard labor. So these were, these were the kulaks. They supplied the marketable grain which the Soviet Union needed until such time as you replace that marketable grain by the grain produced by the collective and state farms, you cannot collectivize the peasantry. Sorry, we're being interrupted. Uh, We, 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 you cannot collectivize. Secondly, the Soviet state had to be in a position to supply the peasantry with the wherewithal of it, namely tractors and machinery. Until such time as Soviet industry was able to supply that, collectivization would be to actually take the individual peasant farmer who plows with his hand to a collective farmer who also plows with his land, which really is an improvement in the sense they're doing collectively, but it's not much of an improvement. Thirdly, the Soviet state needed resources, funds, to actually help the peasantry with credits. And fourthly, it needed to persuade by example, which means the collective farms that were voluntarily over a period of time being established in the state farms had to actually act as model farms to persuade the peasantry as to
3: how peasant farming worked. For example, there was a model state farm called Shevchenko. Peasants would come in big numbers, look at how the land was being ploughed how the harvest was being
2: harvested machinery. And they suddenly said, we've never seen anything like that. <laughs> but, and they go back and the whole villages would collect wires. So all these factors actually came up by the time of 1930. And at the same time, the kulaks realized that the new economic policy, far from leading to the restoration of capitalism, was actually leading to their route because the Bolsheviks had a plan that having gone through the new economic policy, they had l- launched their offensive against ca- capitalism. So they started resisting in a big way. We'll come, 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 come to that. And they were properly uh, uh, and, and dealt with, and they were, they were defeated. So all these factors were not present. And as Stalin continued to point out, collectivization is not that you issue a Trotskyist decree, and then you say, right, it's collectivized. I mean, I come from a country which had a large and still has a large pe- peasant population. I know how stubborn the peasants can be. It's not easily possible to actually corral them into saying you will be collectivized. They had to be persuaded. So all these conditions only came about by by the year end of 29, beginning of 30, and that's when the collectivization would start.
3: Great. Right. Caleb?
2: Sure. Well,
3: it
0: seems to be a recurring theme in Trotsky's writing is contempt for the peasantry. Uh, Trotsky, you know, he disagrees with Lenin and Lenin calls for a revolutionary dictatorship of the workers and peasants. He says, oh, no, 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 just a revolutionary dictatorship of the workers. You can't include the peasantry. Um, you know, he denounces the Chinese revolution because the, the people leading the revolution are a peasant. Uh, a peasant majority that is that's leading the you know the Chinese revolution and that that contempt for the peasantry and the belief that countries with a peasant majority are really incapable of having a full socialist uh, revolution that seems to be like kind of a hallmark of the Trotskyite deviation. Am I wrong?
3: No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this leads me to the two deviations
2: that the Bolshevik had to fight against in order to actually convinced the majority of the party members that collectivization was a good idea. First, there was the left Trotskyist deviation, and then there was the right Bukharanite deviation. If I can just spend a couple of minutes on the Trotskyite deviation. The misfortune of Trotsky lie in his so-called notorious theory of permanent revolution. Now, under that theory, as Caleb has already pointed out, Trotsky did not trust, trust, trust the peasantry. The peasantry could not be an ally of the proletariat, either in the course of revolution or subsequently in the period of building of of socialism. He had no trust in the internal forces of the Soviet Union to build socialism. He was not convinced that socialism could be built in one country. I mean, if the revolution comes only in one country, that's where your operating ground is. That is where you have to operate. Lenin's view was that imperialism, as a result of its undevelop- un- uh, unequal de- equal development, had created the possibilities whereby imperialist powers would fight against each other, and it gives a breather to the working class, and therefore the imperialist chain can we can actually break where the link is the weakest. And Tsarist Russia proved to be the weakest link, and October Revolution happened in the largest, if you like capitalist country, even if it was a backward capitalist country, it was nevertheless a capitalist country. so Trotsky had absolutely no faith. that is his theory of, of, of permanent revolution, and he continues to use that theory to oppose uh, uh, the Bolshevik policy and there are myriads of statements by Trotsky that if the revolution does not come in the advanced European countries, Germany, France, Britain, etc.. There is no way that a Bolshevik Russia can stand its ground and be victorious in that that struggle. It's a a theme that runs through Trotsky before the revolution, after the revolution, and right up to the end of his life. He continues to repeat that mantra. While life refuted
3: that thesis, Trotsky's view was, you know, that mountain has got to come to Muhammad.
2: Reality has to come to him. Reality must change. Well, unfortunately, mistress reality is a very cruel teacher. And that, that, that was not, not, not the case. Trotsky couldn't, didn't believe socialism could be built in a single, single country. And that is actually what leads him more and more into opposition. And he eventually ends up in the pay of the intelligence services of major countries.
0: Well, sure. I mean, he called for an independent uh, Ukraine at a time that that was the primary demand of fascists. Uh, And I mean, you know, we're talking about everything going on with Ukraine now. I mean, when you look over the history, the fact that at the same time you had Stepan Bandera, and Ukrainian nationalists aligning with Hitler, you also had Trotsky agitating for an independent Soviet Ukraine, wanting to break Ukraine from the Soviet Union. I mean, it seems pretty clear that he was collaborating uh, with with certain forces.
3: Definitely. And 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 then there is the Bukharanite uh, 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 deviation. Now the Bukharans' belief
2: was that there was no need to press on the kulaks; they will gradually develop into socialism. He does not understand the mechanics of class struggle under so, under under socialism. He sim- he simply gives the peasants the slogan "Enrich yourself," and at the insistence of the party, he had to withdraw that slogan from an article. And criticize himself.
3: He actually was of the view that socialism would win by just working next to capitalism.
2: Kulaks will keep growing, socialists will keep growing, and eventually they merge into into one. It is a theory of what what is called the subsidence of class struggle. Whereas Stalin never ceased to point out that as the socialists, sectors of the economy grow, grow stronger the class struggle will intensify because the capitalist elements would realize in the countryside as well as in the towns that their day is up that they either fight now or they have to retire from the scene well no exploiting class retires from scene without without a fight so they were put putting up a fight and that's precisely what what, what was happening and Bukharan, was on the industrial front wanting to slow down the rate, 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 rate of uh, industrialization. He opposed some of the important uh, projects, economic projects, as the Soviet Union was, was engaged in, like the hydroelectric uh, projects, et cetera, because they didn't, they, they didn't pay. This was also Trotsky's position. Just as collectivization was being completed, Trotsky wrote a letter, an uh, open letter to the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, asking that collect state
3: farms should be abolished, abrogated, because they didn't pay. Most of the collective farms should be abolished because they were, he said, they were fake, they were fictitious. And The old system whereby the Bolshevik party's
2: policy was that of restricting the exploiting tendencies of the kulaks, that should be reverted to rather than the policy that was adopted in 1930 of eliminating the kulaks as a class, which, as I have pointed out before, could only take place once the conditions for collectivization were were, were present. So although they come from opposite ends, Trotsky and Bukharin, eventually they lead to the same thing namely the restoration of capitalism. The theory of permanent revolution is the extreme left one and the theory of subsidence of class struggle is the, is the rightest one. Everybody can see the theory of subsidence of class struggle is not quite right. But it's much more difficult to see through the leftist phrases of Trotsky and with these leftist phrases, he's able to lure a few people to his side. And you find that in universities now, petty bourgeois elements are very much attracted to Trotskyism because they only look at the phrases. They don't look at the content of those policies and where, and where, they, where, where, they, where they were leading, leading to. And then Trotsky again wrote um, uh, in his bulletin in 1933, again asking for collective farms to be basically dismantled, state farms to be abolished, and reversion the system of uh, actually even granting concessions of big industrial plants in the urban centers to concessionaires because they, did, they didn't pay. That was Trotsky's, if you like, ultra-revolutionary policy.
1: Just before we move on from this and along the theme of looking at the phrase or what the phrase appears to mean and not at the substance, um, do you want to talk a little bit about what it means when we say, or when the Soviets talked about liquidating the kulaks as a class? Uh, because it's presented to us. It's a bit like when they have party purges. It's presented to us in our history books over here as like the word purge or liquidation means killing everybody.
2: <laughs> no, no, of course not. Bolsheviks had more important functions to perform on their hand than, than killing individually every, every kulak. Kulaks who did not wage armed struggle against the Soviet Union, were left to, to work somewhere. They were not allowed to join the collective farms. But nevertheless, they could earn their living as ordinary workers working in factories or, or, or somewhere else. Uh, and the purges, when, they, when you talk about the purges, a purge was a word used by the Soviet Union when there had become, come a lot of opportunists in the party, and they were causing mayhem and they had to be got rid of, i.e. there was a verification of membership and those who had got their party cards as a passport to getting privileges of various kinds, they had to be got rid of. But that's not physical liquidation. They they talk about the same, about the Moscow trials. Moscow trials were of 51 or 52 people. Yes, apart from one or two, most of them, having been found guilty of serious crimes, were executed. But that doesn't mean everybody was. There were six or seven generals in the army who were executed, including Tukhachevsky. And all the stories about liquidation of the Red Army, that Red Army had no leadership. The party had no leadership. The Red Army had been decapitated. The party was denuded of leadership. Well, the only way to test is, in the most difficult of times, i.e. Second World War, did the party show lack of leadership in the Second World War? was the Soviet army bereft of brilliant generals. I could reel the names of more Soviet generals than I can
3: re-name
2: British or American generals. Literally, dozens of Soviet generals who performed heroically and who helped in leading their troops into victorious battle against, against, against Nazism. So there's no question of killing everybody, but there's no question thousands of kulaks would be killed because they were not involved in in a debate at Oxford Union. They were actually
3: conducting horrific uh, struggle against the Soviet state, burning their own crops,
2: burning collective property, killing government and and, and, and uh, party functionaries of of, of of, of the Bolshevik party. They did everything possible to obstruct it. And in that In that course of struggle, no doubt, probably thousands of kulaks were killed. As Mao Zedong said, revolution is
3: not a walk in the garden. You know, it involves killing. If you're frightened of breaking eggs, you can never make an omelet. You know,
2: it's not—take it, any revolution. Forget about the socialist revolution. Americans had their war of liberation. How many people did it kill? eight or nine percent of the then population. Americans had a civil war from 1861 to 64. It wiped out about eight or nine percent of the American population. And there's no point saying how many uh, people did George Washington kill? How many people did Abraham Lincoln kill? Well, of course, as the head of state or head of government, you can hold them responsible. But the responsibility is on two sides, those who are waging the struggle on behalf of slaveocracy and those who were waging the struggle to preserve the union and possibly to abolish slavery, because Abraham's view was with slavery, if that's the only way to preserve the union, and without slavery, slavery, if it must, must be. He wasn't motivated solely by a desire to get rid of slavery, He was motivated by a desire to preserve the union uh, of of the American state. So people get killed, and no doubt they were killed in the course of of collectivization as well. But nobody asks how many Bolshevik functionaries were murdered by the Kulaks. Nobody asks how many libraries were burned by the Kulaks. That's the same as the jihadis let loose by the Americans in Afghanistan. You know, killed school teachers, killed the members of the People's Democratic Party uh destroyed hospitals clinics schools etc nobody talks about that they only talk about the progressive side being involved in any 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 killing
1: absolutely and of course they totally discount the the everyday uh killing that is a part and parcel of the capitalist system to such an extent that we just sort of Shrug it off as like, well, that's just that's just life. People dying from poverty and malnutrition and disease and war every day, all around you. Oh, nothing you can do about that, is there? But the second that people die in trying to get rid of that system that's killing people all around them every day, that's a terrible crime. I mean, you know, the the double standard is astonishing, actually. And if you want to really see, like, Paul said, or I'm sure Caleb has said this before as well, that you know, if you want to see you know, who's killing more? You only have to look at the birth rate. <laughs> when was the birth rate really high in the Soviet Union or in, in Russia? It was during the Soviet period. Before, what was the mortality of children, adults, and all the rest of it? After, you know, the biggest crash Russia ever saw in its birth rate came, you know, the year after the restitution of, of capitalism. That Tells its own story about who's who's killing people, you know. But those numbers are never counted. They're never put in big adverts for the workers to walk past and say, "Oh, this this system that we lo- live under right now, it's like murdering people on mass."
0: Sure. I mean, uh, I mean, how many? You know, they, they use this term "man-made famine," uh, which is is this term that's big in anti-communist propaganda. And if we're going to talk about man-made famines, uh, how many? Man-made famines has free trade capitalism created around the world. How many famines has imperialism created? I mean, if you look at what was done to China after China was was forced into the you know imperialist system by the two Opium Wars, uh, if you look at what was done you know in the Philippines, in India, uh, in Ireland. Uh, you know there was you know that that great potato famine that they, they look back and it was caused very much by the policies of the Whig Party and the free market policies and land seizures in Ireland, and it led to millions of deaths, all over the planet, you have famines created by imperialism, uh, and people die as a result of, of free trade and global capitalism being imposed on developing countries, uh, driving living standards down. Uh, and, you know, I mean, when I was 12 years old, I went to Ecuador. Uh, it was 1999, and, uh, you know, I was just a 12-year-old kid, and we'd get off the airplane, and we see all kinds of desperately poor people. Uh, I'd never seen that level of poverty in my life. Well, what had happened was that was caused by the fact that Ecuador had been forced to give up its own currency uh, and, and adopt the U.S. dollar. Uh, it had been, you know, been forced basically to privatize all of its uh, state industries by the IMF and the World Bank. And the Asian markets collapsed collapsed, and you had an agricultural, uh, you know, collapse due to, you know, some weather conditions. And, and you had a, a situation where because of imperialism and neoliberalism, uh, hundreds of thousands of people were dying and fleeing Ecuador in 1999, when I was there when I was a kid. I mean, all over the world, capitalism creates unnatural deaths by starvation and famine, and no one ever blames that on capitalism. But it was the Soviet Union that mechanized agriculture, created a modern agricultural system, you know, brought Russia to the state of being a fully industrialized country. Um, and yet we're supposed to blame them for the fact that, that there was a famine along the way, that they, you know, when there was a famine all all the time beforehand. I mean, this narrative we get is just so, so ridiculously biased. And it's very frustrating to hear people repeat it. Well, oh, the Soviet Union starved people. No, the Soviet Union cured starvation. Capitalism is still, to this day, starving people all over the planet. So, you know, it's frustrating.
1: It definitely is. And that's something I think that's really worth people emphasizing who do understand that, that, you know, when, when we're told in China... Uh, after the revolution they had a great famine in Russia, after the revolution they had a great famine. It's like, no, socialism in China, socialism in Russia put an end to the regular famines that came every year, every other year to the countryside, to the towns, uh, to the poor people generally. They put an end to famine. Uh, and that's really what we have to keep hold of, you know. Apal. Well, a couple of
2: things uh, really as we're told that millions of people perished during collectivization, not only in Ukraine, but all over the Soviet Union. And all the same, between 1930 and 1938, the Soviet population increased by 10 million. If actually those death figures, which the enemies of socialism have put out, and this propaganda barrage has carried on for hundred years now. If they were true, the population would not have gone up. It actually went up during the most momentous period in the life of the Soviet Union between 1930 and 38, and the, the most difficult period was between 1930 and 33. And during those uh, three and a half to four years, the population increased by. Six million. And then it increased by another four million between 33 and th- th- 38. And so the, 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 that, that, that's one, 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 one straightforward thing. In ordinary times, we live in peaceful times, i.e if you're not in Afghanistan, if you are not in Syria, if you're not in Iraq, if you're not in Libya, Libya. So what is this peaceful uh, uh, existence? About 10 million children die each year to malnutrition and malnutrition-related diseases, which are easily curable and and preventable. And they die in their mother's arms. Nobody has come with an AK-47 to kill them. Nobody's come to take a picture. They just die. They are numberless, they are nameless, and their graves are not marked. So basically, the equivalent of two holocausts are committed every year by the normal functions of, of, of capitalism. That, that's precisely uh, what, what happens. So, and what's more in Tsarist Russia, for example, although people were starving, Tsarist Russia was a big exporter of grain. Now that did not take place in the Soviet Union until such time as the Soviet Union was able to feed its people and there was excess of grain, which the Soviet Union did export in order to buy machinery. But that was during the first few years of industrialization. By the time the industrialization was finished, the Soviet Union was reliant on foreign imports of machinery to no more than 5%. They have built their own industry. There was no, no, no need to do that. So um, we're going to come to U- Ukraine later on. But even U- Ukraine's population, during the period that the Ukrainian nationalists, i.e. Ukrainian fascists, and their imperialists are supposed to say that you know, millions of, of Ukrainians and the guess goes from six million to fifteen million. you know because they're in competition with each other. And it's a question of which of the writers has been paid the latest sum of money by the State Department or the CIA to exaggerate the number because they only have to assert it. assertion is proof for proof them. They don't have to make, bring any 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 proof. the, the, this, the, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian population, Actually, between the year 1929 and thirty nine, increased by 3.4 3, 3. million. So 3.4 million. So it's not a case of Ukrainians perishing and millions dying because of uh, uh, St- Stalin's evil, evil design to kill the Ukrainians. Um, because the Ukrainians were no different from other people. Ukraine was a big grain producing area and there would be absolutely no reason to go around killing the people who produce, produce the grain. So nothing of the kind uh, was, was, was happening. And that in itself is in the indicator of the lie that is propagated that millions of people die. But this is a point to which I want to come a bit later as well. So just
1: before we come back to some of these lies, uh, I just wanted to ask a little bit about what was it that convinced the peasants that collectivization would be a good idea? You know, um, Papa, you talked about how, you know, peasants can be very uh, conservative, very stubborn, set in their ways, uh, would be one way of putting it. And their demand at the time of the revolution was land uh, and their idea of Ultimate happiness was I own my farm and I work my farm and that is my aim in life is to be in that situation with a little bit of security. And, you know, the revolution gave them that, but it wasn't content to stop there for the various reasons you've outlined. How were they persuaded that it would be a good idea uh, to go to collectivization? And could you tell us a little bit about some of the successes of collectivization?
2: Sure. Well, first of all, why they were persuaded. First, there is a negative aspect that since the October Revolution, the farms were being split further into smaller and smaller farms. And they actually were leading to a tremendous amount of differentiation among the peasantry. Majority of them sinking into poor peasantry and a few becoming rich peasants and and, and kulaks. That was the negative experience. The positive experience was that over a period of something like eight, nine years, the Soviet Union had implanted the seeds of communal life among the peasantry through the cooperative movement. If you read Len's co- article on cooperatives, he actually has a plan for the NEP and bring, bringing back the offensive of socialism, i.e. implanting communal life through marketing and supply cooperatives. And then, of course, the highest form of cooperative, producing cooperatives, which is what we call collective farms. So there were a few collective farms. And they were also set up by the Soviet Union state farms, which were actually owned by the state, where not only the means of production, but also the produce belonged to the state. And they acted as models for the Soviet peasantry who were taken there on tours in the countryside to see the results of collective and state farm cultivation of land. And they were persuaded by that there's no way force could be a substitute for that. Force makes for repression. It does not make for economic, economic develop, development. And the Soviet peasantry were persuaded, and they were a huge number. They were a huge number. And the Soviet Union, obviously through its policy, was able to convince the peasantry to turn towards the uh, collective farms. And then again, it took several years before everybody agreed to collectivize. At the end of the first five-year plan, there were 15% of the peasantry who were not collectivized. If force was to be used, surely it's much more easy to use it on 15 remaining percent than on those 85% who were already collectivized. No, they just eventually saw reason. And by the end of the second five-year plan, literally, apart from few relics of a few thousand, every peasant farm had become part of a collective farm movement and part of collective farm production. That's what happened. By the end of the second five-year plan, the Soviet Union, and this really is is a remarkable feat, instead of being a country of 25 million individualist small peasant farmers, became a country of just over 200,000 large collective farms where the means of production were owned by the state where the farms had the sport of machine and tractor stations and of course also during the collective farm movement the soviet proletariat sent 23000 people from the towns into the countryside to help establish collective farms because you know they needed skills how to keep accounts how to run farms you know have managers of farms and various things And they helped them with that. So there was a tremendous amount of solicitude shown by the Soviet state and by the Communist Party in order to actually persuade the peasantry that this was the way out of poverty. Nobody wants to live in poverty. But, of course, if they're ignorant, they think their one and a half acre is the be all and end all of life. You know, as Lenin said, every peasant wants to sit on his own dung heap. They don't even want to have a collective dung heap. But how do you persuade them? It's a difficult task and it cannot be performed by people who either believe in the theory of subsidence of class struggle or who believe that the peasantry can never ever be convinced of the correctness of the policy of the proletariat, of industrialization, of collectivization. So it was a difficult path and it was a path traversed very successfully by by, by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. You ask for the successes of the collector farm uh, uh, movement. Well, the first successes I've already mentioned, that you had 242,000 collector farms instead of 25 million farmers. Secondly, they were taken out of the miserable poverty in which they existed before. The differentiation of the peasantry into rich and poor farmers stopped there and then, and most of the peasantry
3: became if you like, mid, 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 middle middle peasants. Culture was brought to the farms. So you went to a collector farm, they had a library, they had a school, they had a, a, a clinic, a cinema. cinema.
2: You know, cinemas were then then coming. And Lenin also said, cinemas are a great hope for the future because that is the screen that you use for propagating our message to the masses of of peasants. So all that was coming instead of the peasantry being left behind and regarding the, the town as an enemy, suddenly began to see the town as a friend. And this really also laid the basis, if things were to continue on that basis, for the elimination of differences between, if you like, the town and country. They were not completely eliminated, but the differences were bridged very, very marked, markedly, as a result, result of this policy. So the peasantry could see from their own conditions what what, what was taking place. So the, the, these were tremendous successes, if you like. But if you if you look at it, what the Soviet Union was able to do, it's just literally remar- remarkable. If I give you just a few figures of what the Soviet Union supplied to the farms. Whereas in 1928, there were only 35,000 tractors in the whole country. A year later, it was 72,000. In 1931, it was 125,000. In 1932, it was 148,000. In 1933, it was 204,000. Sorry about the figures. And by 1938, there were 480,000 tractors. By 1940, that's just before the war started, nearly 700,000 tractors. And after the devastating war against the Soviet Union by the Nazis, we destroyed thousands of villages, we destroyed thousands of industrial enterprises, we devastated thousands of collective and, and state farms and machine and tractor, tractor stations. In 1955, believe it or not, that's what, two years after Stalin's death, there were 1.5 million tractors. Now, which country at that time had 1.5 million tractors? The answer is none. And then there were machine and tractor stations, whereas in 1930, there were only 158. In 1940, there were over 7,000. And in 1955, 9,000. These were gigantic enterprises where every kind of machinery was put. And the collector farms came and hired that machinery from the state farms. So there was a system of payment between them. They usually paid in kind, i.e. they disposed of some of their produce and the collector farms uh, uh, received the aid. So these were tremendous achievements. There was no country of such centralized agriculture and such centralized industry as the Soviet Union. And there was no country which had as much machinery working on its own farms. If people say the farms are poor and they didn't produce anything, how the hell do you maintain these farms? During the first five-year plan, they trained two million tractor drivers. Now, everybody is born driving a tractor now. But those days, people had to be trained, you know, and they were trained. And even Isaac Deutscher has to say that the tractor drivers were easily able to switch from there to driving tanks, and which was very handy in the, in, in the Second World War because the Soviet Union brought technology to the countryside, it brought technology to most most of its people. So the, these were tremendous achievements. Caleb? Sure, I mean, I think that,
0: you know, everyone recognizes that, like, 1931, uh, you did have some serious, you know, uh, crop failures and, and shortages. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, that happened. But, It's weird because it's like, on the one hand, you have Trotsky with his criticism arguing, well, the collectivism wasn't done properly. It should have been done this way or that way. And then you have this Ukrainian nationalist narrative, which is that Stalin was sitting up there on his throne in Moscow and was saying, oh my goodness, I hate Ukraine. How dare Ukraine have a nation uh, in order to crush the national aspirations of the Ukrainian people? I'm going to forcibly starve them because I am just so maniacal. And like, We've seen, you know, even, you know, the modern Russian government has come out and said that narrative just doesn't match the facts. Yes, there were there was, you know, there were some food shortages and there were, you know, there were crop failures and such in 1931. But they didn't just happen in Ukraine. They happened in in other parts of the Soviet Union as well. Um, And and it wasn't, you know, the idea that there was some kind of intentional policy of trying to exterminate Ukrainians out of out of some kind of, you know, Russian nationalist, you know, chauvinism. That just doesn't match the historical record, right? You can argue that, that that maybe the Soviet Union should have had a different policy with regard to creating the, the farm system, but this idea that uh, this was the equivalent of what the Nazis did, you know, at, at their concentration camps, where they're trying to wipe out wipe out a group of people. I mean, that's that's just not what happened, uh, you know. I mean, and and to to equate what you know, you know, the Soviet Union, which is struggling to build a modern farming system is transitioning from private farming to collective farming. And to equate that with people putting people on trains, taking them to uh, taking them to concentration camps, putting them in gas chambers and killing them is like, I'm sorry, but but one does not equal the other. And I mean, this is just something you have to you have to stand for. And the fact that they've created this equivocation is shocking to me. And look, look, It it really shows how blatant, I mean, academia in the United States, the head of the Russian Studies Department at Yale University is a man named Timothy Snyder. And Mm -hmm. this man is a hack. I mean, he is an anti-Russian propagandist, uh, and his work has been thoroughly dissected. Um, Much of the records he draws from to make his conclusions uh, don't say what he claims that they say. Um, and this is, this is not just some obscure anti-communist agitator. This is the head of the Russian Studies Department at Yale. And his book, Bloodlands, is, is an attempt to equate uh, the, the Soviet Union and its allies in the Second World War with the Nazis. Um, and, and I mean, it's just he writes, he writes this, this, this propagandistic drivel trying to equate the Soviet Union uh, with Nazi Germany, uh, trying to equate agricultural policies with, with gas chambers. I mean, it's just, it's just shocking to me. And that you know we do have to stick up for historical truth here. You know you can be critical of the Soviet Union, but some things are true and some things are not. And I mean the idea that that you know collectivization or agricultural policies is the equivalent of what the Nazis did at the Holocaust. I mean you have to just stand up and say that's not that's
3: not the case. Well, uh, can I I? please? Yeah. Well, the thing is, as I have mentioned on
2: several occasions before. There's two, two kinds of collectivization. You either allow the poor peasantry by the workings of the law of capitalism to, to disappear through poverty and destitution and be driven off their farms. And therefore the land is in the hands of big, big farmers. And that's collectivization under capitalism. There's a collectivization under socialism of the type that happened in the Soviet Union, which is without in any way harming the peasantry, but actually introducing them into a life life of prosperity and, 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 and culture. So it's between you, it's, it's really not a technical question. Technically, the bourgeois and the proletarian disagree that small farm is not a productive viable option. The only way to feed the population and to have modern agriculture is through big farms, which are able to employ machinery, fertilizers, and modern techniques and scientific methods to agriculture. Which cannot be done on one and a half a, a, a acre of, of land, or even on one and a half hectare hectare, hectare of land. So that's that 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 that's that that's the that, that, dif- difference, as far as killing millions of people. Now, during the Second World War, the bourgeois and proletariat are agreed that Soviet Union lost 27 million people. That's 10,000 people a day. Now, according to the calculations of various mercenaries and paid agents of the bourgeoisie who occupy prestigious seats in prestigious universities in America, in Britain, and in many other imperialist countries, according to them, 27, 30 million people died. Well, that means the streets of these, Moscow and Leningrad and other places would have been littered with corpses. Did anybody see? No, nobody, nobody saw any such sort of thing because there were no such sort of things. There were shortages of food and there were a number of reasons for the difficulties in the year 1931-32. One was the simple fact of reorganizing agriculture from individual to collective farms. Reorganization takes place and during the period of reorganization, a certain amount, amount of uh, uh Production facility is, is affected. The Soviet Union never denied. If you look at Stalin's speeches, he gives you the figures, what that grain production in each year was during that time. And apart from these two difficult years, the Soviet Union always produced more grain than was produced in pre-Zarist Russia in 1913, which was the year of unprecedentedly good harvest. So the the
3: that, that that that's point 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 number one S- secondly of course is the fact that as far as the figures of, of pe- people killed are concerned different writers
2: give different figures and you have to see who has received the largest bonus from the american administration they're not academics they're not honest people you know you can even you can respect even an opponent who is an honest researcher and tries to put forward some argument. The people you are mentioning, like Timothy Snyder, Robert Conquest, who are they? They are basically either CIA agents, as in the case of uh, 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 Robert Conquest was a British intelligence agent, or they are actually agents, but working with three-piece suits and propagating their lies at, 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 at universities. So it's just, just just not true.
1: Absolutely. And before we move on from there, I just want to recommend uh, to our viewers and listeners uh, that you should really, um, if you're interested more in this, what Grover Fur called uh, uh, propaganda with footnotes, this kind of fake historiography of the bourgeoisie, when it, in particular when it comes to questions affecting class politics and the Soviet Union most of all, uh, that um, and Timothy Snyder's uh, Bloodlands, as it's called, has been uh, ruthlessly dissected, forensically dissected by Grover Fur, and it's really worth looking at that because he looks up the original source documents. He speaks Russian. He's got access to the Soviet archives. He looks up every single reference, hunts it down, and tells you what that reference actually says, as opposed to what Snyder tells you it says, uh, and 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 it reveals how this kind of trick of Academia, fake academia is really played on people. It looks very impressive, loads of footnotes everywhere, as if this has been kind of well researched with original materials, uh, when in fact it's nothing of the kind. It's the same old, the same old, same old repeating lies and hearsay and all the rest of it. Um, And that brings us on really to this question of lies. There are two lies in particular that are really pushed very, very hard uh, on workers and peasants in the capitalist world about collectivization in the Soviet Union. And the first one is the peasants were forced into collectivizing against their will. uh, And there was a kind of bloodbath associated with that. It was all coercion and uh, guns pointed at people's heads. And the other one is um, that there was a huge famine that took place in Ukraine, the so-called Holodomor, which was equivalent to, as Caleb was saying there, another kind of Holocaust, uh, deliberately sort of engineered because... Communists are, are such evil people. Uh, and uh, li- these, these both these lies, really, are being dredged up again now, particularly the Holodomor lie. Um, but both of these lies are being pushed very hard, have have been ever, ever since of the time, and particularly since World War II and the Cold War, but they're coming back around again now. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, uh, I'll start with Caleb, actually, about the lies and about why now they're being pushed again.
3: Well, that's a... Sorry, sorry. No. Oh, Caleb. you want me to go or? Caleb. Uh, oh, OK.
0: Well, you know, I, I'll just say this. You know, I lived in Cleveland, Ohio for many years. Now I live in New York City. But in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, there were a lot of Ukrainian folks uh, who had immigrated to the United States during the Cold War and were anti-communist. There were also a lot of Hungarians who had fled to the United States after the 1956 you know uprising that was led by the CIA against against the socialist government there. Um, and one thing that always shocked me about these folks is that uh, you know, first you would hear the anti-communism, right? Well, communism destroyed my country. It killed all these people. But if you press them long enough, they would start saying things like, "Well, you know, Hitler wasn't actually so bad, uh, you know, and that the Nazis were trying to free our people from the evil Soviet Union." And a lot of these, a lot of these Eastern U- European folks that came to the United States that you know were were anti-Soviet were supporters of Nazism, supporters of hitler admirers of, of of hitler they had fascist narratives um and, and and there was this weird blind spot that americans had if an american if an average american starts going around saying oh hitler was great the holocaust never happened uh people say to that person okay you're a nazi you're a far right person you know get away from me however with these folks from ukraine and these folks from hungary that would talk this way Oh, it it was like it was it was kind of they were given a pass. It's like, oh, well, you lived under communism and communism's so bad. So it makes sense that you would feel this way, and that there has been this tolerance in US society for far right extremist elements from Eastern Europe, uh, simply because they're anti-communist. Um, and that even now, what what frustrates me the most is that that, you know, among the uh the the so-called far left that is constantly accusing all kinds of people of being fascists and all kinds of people of being I mean, disagree about one thing, you're a fascist and a Nazi, they tend to support these people and echo their narratives when these people are blatantly talking in support of Nazis. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine, for example, I mean, the US government is arming the Azov Battalion, which is a, a group of people that are Hitler admirers. They had a parade, you know, for Stepan Bandera, uh, who is a was a collaborator with the Nazis during the Second World War. They wear the uh, a Nazi insignia on their uniforms, the US government is pouring lethal weapons and lethal aid into Ukraine arming these folks and a lot of these social Democrats that are constantly accusing all kinds of people, every Trump supporter must be a Nazi every working class person who doesn't agree with them about this issue or that issue must be a Nazi but actual Nazis in Ukraine who openly say Hitler was right in World War II oh well they're fine they're just you know they're protecting their country from Russia or something and it's it's shocking to me and that we've allowed these these fascistic elements to completely rewrite history, uh, to declare that, you know, that, that difficulties building an agricultural system, uh, amount to an intentional genocide, uh, you know, to, to, you know, say that a famine that happened all over the Soviet union and killed people in many different nationalities was an intentional policy to wipe out one nationality. Um, we've, we've, we've allowed them to just spew their narrative. Um, and it doesn't get challenged and people are very afraid and, you know, Grover Furr, I, I admire him because he's stood up to this. And he said, no, I'm going to look into what Timothy Snyder says. And he's trying to say the Soviets were just as bad as the Nazis in World War II. I'm going to dig into his sources on that. And I'm going to point to the fact that it's malarkey. Um, and I, I admire him for doing that. We have to challenge this barrage of of deception uh, and and the forces that, that that promote it. And I think that that's, that's a necessary undertaking, because if you don't take this on, Ultimately, uh, you really have no grounds to challenge imperialism and and that, that the imperialist narrative is based on this. Well, every every force that has emerged to challenge imperialism, the Soviet Union, China, uh, you know, they're 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 worse. They've killed more people. And that just doesn't you know, it doesn't meet the facts.
1: Absolutely. And you've hit right there, Caleb, haven't you, on why they create this narrative? It's to demoralize us. And that's exactly why, you know, people who claim to be leaders of the working class, who want to help the working class get organized for socialism, must be able to stand up against this barrage. You know, however difficult and unpopular it is, your job is to say when a lie is a lie, right, and not be intimidated by the way you're attacked for doing that. Hapal.
2: See, that that narrative by imperialism and its, academic and non-academic agents, serves two purposes. One, it's a distraction from the terrible suffering that the working class in the imperialist countries and all over the world went through during the period of Great Depression, when the Soviet Union was the only country whose economy was developing at a terrific rate. And even bourgeois, who visited the Soviet Union, like the uh, head of the United Dominion Trust in Britain, who visited there, came back. First of all, he apologizes for speaking in favor of the Soviet Union. He said, please do not consider I'm a Bolshevik. Please do not consider I'm a communist, I'm not, but I have been to Russia. And all that you're being told is a total lie. And what actually distinguishes the Russian youth from our youth is they've got hope. And our youth, has absolutely no hope, hope in the present or, 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 or the other or future. So it's a, it's a distraction. The people living in poverty, you know, you can read novels like Grapes of Wrath. They'll tell you what the condition of the American countryside was at that time. They don't talk about that. They only talk about the fake famine in the Soviet Union, where Stalin thought it was a good idea to kill Ukrainians. Why would it be a good idea to kill the Ukrainians? It was the second largest nationality in the old old USSR. It was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. Why would anybody want to kill the Ukrainians? And the Ukrainians, of course, the lie is given in the Second World War, when four and a half million Ukrainians fought in the Red Army against against the fascists. Now, people who are disgruntled, people who think they've been the target of a decimation campaign, do not go and, and fight. Of course, they were a small minority of, uh, of Ukrainian nationalists, basically fascists. To call them nationalists is, is wrong. They, they call themselves nationalists because it's a good euphemism. If you're a nationalist, you stand for your nation. They didn't stand for the Ukrainian nation. They were fascists. They were on the payroll of Hitler before the invasion by Hitler of Soviet Russia in 1941. And when they entered Ukraine, who were the German army, fascist armies led by? the Ukrainian fascists. And in the first eight days of being in Ukraine, they killed over 100,000 Jews. The ideology of anti-Semitism, of racism, of fascism runs through Ukrainian nat- nat- nationalism. And that's what was happening. And thanks to the patriotism, Soviet patriotism of the Ukrainian people, they actually joined the rest of their brethren from Russia from Kazakhstan, from Tajikistan, from Georgia, and everywhere from various national minorities to defeat the Hitlerite fascists. The Soviet Union did not discriminate against national minorities, especially a minority like the Ukrainians, which were indistinguishable in many ways from the Russians. And it was the largest, second la- la- largest section of the, of the Soviet population. So it's just, 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 just not, not, not true. The Ukrainian, I mean, the story actually about the Holodomor or whatever it's called, uh, I, the Ukrainian Holocaust, was started by an article that appeared in 1935 in the Hearst Press. Now Hearst was America's fascist number one at that time. In 1934, he'd gone to Germany and 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 met 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 met
3: Hitler, and the article was written by a certain. Uh, Miss, Mr Walker, Thomas Walker, who was presented in the in, in, in Hearst press
2: as an expert on Russia who'd spent several years in Russia and that, uh, a, a, a journalist. It turned out later on he was an escaped convict. His name was Robert Green, and at his trial he admitted that the account he had written of U- Ukraine was fake, and the pictures he had shown were fake, because these pictures related not to Ukraine of 1932-33. They related to pictures of the, sec- of the aftermath of the Second World War in Austria and in Russia, where there was a famine in Russia. There were 3 million people who died of famine, but that was because of the uh, civil war and the, and the war-, war-, war of, of, of in- in- intervention. Sorry, do you World War
1: One there. First World
2: War. After the First World War. After the First World War. Yeah. So these were the pictures taken then, but they were conflated with saying, "Well, these are from 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 Ukraine, starving children, dying dying people in the streets, etc." They 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 were um, uh, shown as such, but it had nothing to do with it. At the time, there was an American journalist called Louis Fisher, who was living in the United States at that time. He exposed this whole thing saying it couldn't be of that period because he lived in Russia and he knew that this was not, 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 not the case. And he also said, why had the Hearst Press waited 10 months before they published this article? The report apparently had been sent to them by Walker in 34. Why did they wait till 35 to to, to, to to publish it? And then he also said that he was in Russia and he saw Nowhere, any, 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 any signs, signs, signs of people dying, di- dying of star- starvation. In Britain, there was somebody called Sir John Maynard, who was an expert in famines. And he uh, analyzed the figures. He'd been to Russia and he said, there's no way there was a famine in, 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 in you, you, Ukraine at that time. The French ambassador, the French prime minister at the time, Edward harriot also published, that he'd been to Russia at that time and there was no sign, sign of them. But notwithstanding that, these figures continue
3: to be published. And then, of course, they became scandalously high. Whereas Mr. Walker, who was himself a fraud,
2: whose pictures were a fraud, whose story was fake and everything, he had put the, the people... Uh, dead in Ukraine at 6 million. Then came Robert Conquest with his Harvest of Sorrow, which was published in 1986. He ups the number to 17 million. So because it's a higher number, every imperialist and their flunkies accept that 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 num, 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 number, number to the case. And th- there's a very well-known, I don't know whether he's still alive, very well-known American historian J. Arch Getty. Now he exposed these, these stories. He said these are all anecdotes. They're stories like my and the Bukharan's wife met so and so in a prison camp who told her so-and-so. Now, how do you how do you ver- verify any such story? Whereas there's no work of scholarship here. Whereas Robert Kamkush, on the other hand, said the real story only comes through ac- anecdotes and stories. You've got to listen listen to them because he's got no other source for backing up the assertions that the, and the lying assertions that, 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 that he makes. And based on that, of course, films were produced, you know, uh, and, and they were shown all over the place, including by, by, by the BBC. So that's something that goes well in bourgeois circles, particularly those pretending to be very impartial and seek, seek, seekers of truth. And that's how, how they seek truth. And that really is the story of a lot more. And what happens during the Second World War,
3: because the uh, Ukrainian fascists, a few thousand of them, fought on the Nazi side, they then, at the end of the war, were quickly whisked away to the uh, uh, United States and various
2: European countries, and they were put to work, like many of the other Nazi con- convicts, were put to work on Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice America, and various schools training agents for Eastern and Cent- Cent- Central Europe. That was the service they performed. And they continue to be an important constituency in Canada, especially in the state of Alberta, where they're a sizable voting, voting minority. And one of their m- members is, of course, now, uh, I don't know if she still as a foreign minister, uh, I think it's Cynthia Friedland, she's a Ukrainian, and they continue to propagate that kind of narrative. I don't know whether she's still the foreign minister. Until recently, she was the foreign minister in Trudeau government.
1: Thanks, guys. Well, I'm really conscious we've had a pretty long uh, discussion. We should probably draw it to a close. So before we come to a close, Caleb, is there any last uh, thought you'd like to put in?
0: Well, I mean. I, I would encourage people to, to be open minded to hearing, you know, the kind of things that, that have been said on here, because there we have been just hit with this barrage of deception. The Soviet Union turned you know, Russia and the surrounding countries into modern countries, industrialized them, raised millions out of poverty. Socialism in China has made China the second largest economy in the world. Uh, but yet we're continued, to, you know, to be hit with this allegation that somehow it, uh, socialism starves people, socialism makes people poor, and it's like the historical record points to the opposite pretty blatantly. So I think it's important to to challenge these assertions that are being made and and to kind of look into the details. And that often things are very very complex when people, you know, I mean, when you know, developing an agricultural system is not an easy thing. You don't get handed a, a blank slate and you can just draw anything on there. I mean, you're you're dealing with the conditions in the country. It's a policy, and I mean, we all know that that there were hardships along the way in building the Soviet Union, and no one is here denying that there were hardships or that there were maybe policies that that had negative effects, but there is this this deceptive propaganda narrative that has been pushed on us all throughout our lives in the United States, and that that narrative needs to be challenged. Uh, You know, that, that the Soviet Union accomplished amazing things, ultimately defeated the Nazis, invented space travel, you know, they had really big achievements, uh, and it wasn't just one big, endless, you know, starvation, famine, and, and then they got freedom in the 90s, and they were so happy. Like, that's not what happened. I mean, the the historical record, basic economic data challenges this anti-communist narrative we've been spoon-fed our whole lives, and I, I encourage people to be open-minded about that.
1: Definitely. And if you want a, just a small bit of proof, You know, there was a little window in which US and British imperialism had to uh, hold back on their anti communist propaganda, and it was during the time of the alliance in the Second World War. And some fascinating little uh, literature came out of that period uh, when. They had to sort of very quickly reverse positions. They've been busy telling their people uh, Soviet Union is terrible and it's weak and uh, it's going to collapse any second. And then suddenly they had, they wanted to convince their people that actually it's a good, strong ally. And you get all kinds of um, little publications coming out. There's a lovely British one called USSR, Strength of Our Ally. I've got a little falling apart, little paperback pamphlet copy of that somewhere in my study. And, and it's lovely. It's all facts and figures about, you know, what a firm industrial uh, base the USSR has, you know, how uh, its, its economy is on a really sound footing and they're able to feed their people and they're strong and they're going to help us win the war, uh, you know. And there was this little period where even the imperialist kind of state machines were forced into telling some truths uh, unwillingly, but but they were for a little moment. And it's worth looking out for some of that information that they printed in those days. Rapal, before we go.
2: Um, Very quickly, comrade. Um, Quite rightly, the Communist Party and the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Bolsheviks, rightly characterizes the collectivization of the peasantry in Soviet Russia as a second revolution, equal in importance to the October Revolution. Because without that revolution, there would have been no consolidation of socialism in the Soviet Union for such such a, such a long period of time. You know, by the time the first five, collectivization was central to the first five-year plan. And by the time the first five-year plan was, was finished, the Soviet Union not only had collectivized the peasantry and brought them onto the path of, path of collectivism and opened a path to culture, whereby an illiterate, Ignorant,
3: uncultured population was becoming an enlightened, cultured, and population, you know, being
2: taught in higher schools, middle schools, lower schools, in the dozens of languages of the various nationalities of the USSR. It was a completely different thing. Unemployment had been abolished. Unemployment is the scourge of the working class under, under the condition of capitalism. Central planning and elimination of capitalism is actually responsible for the gigantic process pro, progress economically and in every field made by every socialist country. Because how can capitalism ever compete with it if it's constantly faced with recurring crisis of overproduction, during which all production stops? Millions of people are thrown onto, on, on, onto the dole do, do, do queues goods are destroyed, industry does not function, credit ceases, where under socialism, under central planning, you you plan for the needs of the people. It's not chaotic produce, produce produced by individual capitalists on their own account, where nobody knows what is coming to the market. Only when you brought your goods into the market, you know whether you produce too little or whether you produce too much. That's called planning by the market. Well, that is not what happened under the conditions of socialism. They were able to abolish unemployment, and precisely for that reason, the 17th Party Congress was declared
3: a Congress of victors, whereby the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union had
2: achieved victories against its internal and external enemies, against the opponents of Soviet policy within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, like Trotsky and Bukharinites, and it had also defeated imperialists who said socialism does not work. And as Jyoti has rightly pointed out, you know, during the war, they suddenly realized Soviet Union was important. And Churchill says in his history of the Second World War, it was the Red Army that tore the guts out of the Wehrmacht. You know, that is when they speak truth, that is true. And in the House of Commons, he made a statement, praying for Stalin's good health, because he's the only one who has such following in Soviet Russia, that Soviet people trust him. Later on, he was to be demonized as being the equal of Nazis and all the rest of it. But that's a new story as the Cold War begins, and we will discuss one day, as the Second World War hadn't finished when they started preparing the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Every attempt was made towards the end of the Second World War to come to a separate agreement with the Nazis. They held meetings in Sweden, Sweden. Uh, you know, and, 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 and Ribbentrop met, met representatives of, of, uh, of Churchill and, and others. It came to be known to Stalin. He He demanded an explanation and apolog- Churchill apologized and said, it won't happen again. But the fact of the matter is, the Soviet Union was basically the only country that fought against Nazi Germany. 80% of the Nazi armies were concentrated on the Eastern Front, and that's where the fight took place. The Western part did not join the fight against, against them in a serious way in Western Europe until the opening of the Second Front, which was in 1944. Which gives you an idea of how valiantly they were fight, fighting against fascism. They were not fighting against fascism; they were defy- fighting to defend their colonialist and imperialist, imperialist interests. Sovietism alone was fighting against fascism, and be it said to her credit, and to the credit of her, and the, and the glory of her people, that they succeeded and saved mankind from the jackboot of fascism. And we continue to enjoy the benefits of that even today although the Soviet Union disappeared 30 years ago.
1: Thanks, Dad. Well, I think I'm going to wrap it up there. There's definitely more topics coming out of this one. Um, Just two thoughts I want to leave you with. Number one is, of course, that it was socialist USSR which essentially won the war in Europe, the Second World War, just as it was uh, the People's Liberation Army in China which won the war in the East. At great, great sacrifice of the masses. Uh, And the Soviet success in that war rested on its success in building uh, a socialist state, a socialist society, a socialist economy, which not only was feeding people, lifting them up, giving them employment and security and culture, but also giving them technical training and a modern uh, ability with machinery, as Dad says, and, and education and all the rest of it, which enabled them number one to to be uh, good fighters, uh, but also gave them huge motivation in the second world War. They had so much that they had gained so much to defend that they're really the the best the flower of the Soviet youth uh, was sacrificed in that fight, but they sacrificed themselves willingly because they knew what they had gained and what they were fighting for, what they were defending. And the other last thought I'd like to leave you with is just thinking about. You know, collectivization. why does it matter? You know, for many of us living in Western Europe, the idea of a peasantry is something very distant and remote. But what we're talking about here is how is our food produced and what are the conditions like for the people who are producing the food? Um, and as Herpal said, and all over the world there are food producers and then we're never going to stop having people producing food. Uh, No matter how much mechanisation we have, there will be people involved in producing the food. And the question is, what's our relationship with those people? What's their relationship to the town? What's the conditions in the countryside and on the land? What kind of food are they producing for us? All of these things are very important to us. There's not much that's more important than that people are fed, right? The question is, how are they fed and how do we take care and how do we make sure that everybody is fed and, and, and that everybody has a decent life. And these are vital questions, actually, for us to understand. And particularly when you look at most of the world, the conditions of the poor peasants who are still producing a huge amount of the food that we're eating here in the West, uh, it's actually a, a very vital question still. So uh, thank you very much to our contributors, to Caleb, to Hapal, to everyone watching and listening this time, and uh, we'll see you next time. Lots can
2: we
3: can we agree that we'll discuss industrialization next time certainly